Tonight our topic is uh, Paul, about Paul. Our, our character topic is Paul. Our personality is Paul. I appreciate the series you've chosen. And my specific uh, assignment is Paul going from, we chose to call it, uh, religious to righteous. From religious, or we might just say religiousness almost, to righteousness. And what does that mean? What does that look like? You know, sometimes it's Coke or Pepsi or Sprite or Dr. Pepper or depending on where you are in southern middle Tennessee, it might go Sundrop, that sort of thing. Uh, but you know what some people say? You got, have you got a Coke? And what we mean is, I want something fizzy. And that's all, you know, well, I don't have Coke, I, Dr. Pepper, that's fine. I don't have Coke, I have, well, that's fine. But a lot of times people are just using a more general term uh, for something, and so we say, give me a Coke. How about this one? Some of you at home have the specific brand Kleenex. That's a brand. It's not a thing. It's a brand. But what do I, I'm, I say it too. What do I say? I need a Kleenex. Well, if you said all I've got is puffs, guess what? I'd take it. Because that's what I, I need a tissue. That's what I'm saying. I need a tissue. But I say I need a Kleenex, right? This is what we do. And so we sort of alternate terms and we just kind of mean something overall more generic. It doesn't matter. I, you know, that's what I mean. I just said this. And sometimes in Scripture or from Scripture, study of Scripture, people begin to interchange words. Uh, and we, we sort of think, like, here's an example. Maybe one of the greatest examples I think of, anyway, in the New Testament would be uh, kind of uh, God's mercy and God's grace. Okay, well, you know, mercy, grace, yeah, that. Well, no, it's not that because they're different. They go together. They, they, they flow together. They dovetail nicely throughout the New Testament and have to, but they're not exactly the same. And so we need to talk about them separately rather than just acting like we're all saying the same thing just depending on which term we happen to choose today. Religious and righteousness might unfortunately look like that or sound like that for people from time to time and, and yet not, not the same thing. So what, is, what does it mean to be religious? Well, you know, religion in general is just sort of a practice that can include being from something believed or, uh, from something believed or to have something attained. It can include a good heart, but the key word I want you to consider for tonight is the word practice. Well, I want to practice in righteousness in the pursuit of righteousness, I want to practice certain things in my life, but that's more born out of something else where religion is sort of a practice. It can begin there and it can end there for some. Righteousness is beyond a practice alone. It gets down to from where the practice comes and why it's a part of my daily life. Maybe a chosen practice that is a natural outcome or effect of something that has happened within. The practice is an outcome of something that has happened within. It's a natural effect that flows from something else which is righteousness. The root word of righteousness would be, well, by definition, the word means that which is right. And let me take you to a New Testament verse as we begin on that idea. One that you'll remember 
good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? Might emphasize the me there. In context, in original language, you might emphasize that word me there a little bit. So why do you call me good? But either way, why do you call me good or just why do you call me good? There's none good but God alone. Are, are you willing to go all the way with that? Are you saying what I think you might be saying? Do you realize what you're saying? Are, are you willing to go the rest of the way with that? Because there's none good, inherently good, but God alone. So righteousness... Being right really stands with one and one alone, doesn't it? If that's the definition as a whole, righteousness has to flow from one source. It's in the Word, the being right. Who is that? That's not me all the time. It's, she's not here, so I'll say it. it's not my wife all the time. It's nobody you know all the time unless you know God and the Son of God. And can I tell you this? I can walk in the back of a church building. I can practice a lot of things. And it does not mean I know God. Can I tell you that preachers unfortunately and elders unfortunately kind of live in a world where their heart is somewhat regularly broken or saddened to some degree, feeling like Jesus would sometimes feel and say in the New Testament, have you been with me this long and yet you still don't understand? Daniel's been an elder, so he would know what I'm talking about because, you know, in a brother-in-laws talk about things in church life and church work when one's a preacher and one's an elder over the years that they do that. Hey, let me run this by you. Hey, we had this situation, that kind of thing. That's natural. And everybody that's been in a role of shepherding the flock and everybody that's been in the role of ministering to God's people, you do it long enough, you're going to find out that Somebody regularly walking in the back of a building and having a seat for a while one time a week does not mean they know God. No matter how long they've been doing that. And it saddens us. Religious, righteous. Not necessarily the same thing. Based on that which is right, that which is right all the time, only He who is right, who holds right in His hand, who holds right in His through and through being. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end and everything in between. And because that's true, I am. Remember? You tell Him the I am sent you. Who do I say sent me? You tell Him I am. And that encompasses it all. That'll be enough. Because He is He is alone righteous. He's the source of right. There are none that are righteous, no, not one, based on his own goodness. So I want to sort of kick off tonight from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 this way. 
It's what we call the Sermon on the Mount, beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, what is the Sermon on the Mount about? It's about righteousness. It seems to be a lot of many sermons throughout those three chapters. Jesus is going to talk a little bit about this, going to talk a little bit about this. But if you had to sum up the Sermon on the Mount in one word, what is the topic, what is the summary idea in that section of Scripture that we read so much, preach from so much, what is it? It's a sermon, one sermon, on righteousness. How God goes about making man righteous who can't stand righteous before Him based on His own goodness. And so, in the sermon on, if you're going to teach a sermon on righteousness, teach a class on righteousness to a group of people as they assemble there before Jesus, and you'll want to get down here, and the down here end, the end of it all is how you can stand righteous. What would be the first thing out of your mouth? You know what it is? We call them the Beatitudes, and it's number one in line. And I want you to, we don't have time for this tonight, but I want you to buy into this. In a study, a personal study, these, these Beatitudes are not numbered, they're not enumerated arbitrarily. They're in an order for a reason, I believe. It's not just, well, I could have flipped these two. And I think there's a reason for the order. And the first thing said in a sermon on righteousness is, blessed are the poor in spirit. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the, uh, the work, the ministry that a lot of congregations are involved in called Lads to Leaders. Years ago, when I was with the Woodson Chapel congregation, we were at, up at the Opryland Hotel up there for the Lads to Leaders convention, the annual thing they had there. And uh, there was a gift shop there. And one of the then deacons, now elders of the Woodson Chapel congregation bought me a t-shirt to present to me the next Sunday in class. The previous Sunday, we had started a, a series in that class on Sermon on the Mount. So the first week, we're in Matthew 5, 3, Matthew 5, 4. We got through the first several Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 3, Sermon on the Mount, and I made this comment. What does that mean, blessed are the poor in spirit? Let me tell you how it's, I think, unfortunately misinterpreted is we just kind of look at it more generally and say, oh, bless those that are sad. God will eventually relieve our sadness. Bless the hearts of those that they're just sad. I, I don't think that's the full intent, and I don't think we do it justice to leave it there. Because in a sermon on righteousness, why would he say that first? How about this? I made this comment in this class. Blessed, ultimately. It's an ultimate blessing. It's oh, the eventual happiness that's coming first for the one who recognizes that by himself, standing alone based on his own goodness, he's spiritually impoverished. Therefore, in other words, and I use this term, I, I bring nothing to the table. We, um, <laughs> we use that phrase a lot. So-and-so brings a lot to the, that Joseph Horton, he, he brings a lot to the table. You know, that, that Orrin Huffman, he, he brings a lot to the table. What do we mean? What we mean is he's got some skills and some talents, some abilities. So-and-so brings a lot to the table. That's how we mean that. But brethren, in terms of 
a righteousness that can stand before God when I draw my last breath, I bring nothing to the table based on my own goodness. So in a sermon on righteousness, you've got to first get this idea out there. The first thing you've got to get out there is this idea. You're not good enough. See, if I think I am, I've got no reason to submit to the righteousness of Christ. Because I don't think I need to. Therefore, I won't, most likely. So in a sermon on righteousness, why would the first thing be, blessed are the poor in spirit? Because if I don't understand that based on my own goodness, stand alone by myself, I am spiritually impoverished and I bring nothing to the table, I'll never see the need to submit to that which is coming later throughout the sermon. Righteousness. Well, he finds this t-shirt in Opryland Hotel, and it's a white t-shirt with blue lettering, and it's a company that does a lot of uh, events, major events at the hotel there for businesses, and um, I've lost my word for a second I was going to bring, but anyway... Uh, trade shows, that kind of thing. And right here, across the top of the white t-shirt, all it said was, I bring nothing to the table. And then it had their, the company's little insignia that does all this for you. In other words, hey, your business won't have to worry about a thing. You just come here, rent our space, and we're going to take care of everything else. We'll take care of the rest. You don't have to bring anything. I bring nothing to the table. So the next Sunday in class, this t-shirt is folded up and put on the speaker stand like, I thought they made it up. I thought in a week, because I'd made that statement the previous Sunday, they had brought this t-shirt, somebody had it made, just a single t-shirt, and brought it to me. Well, no, I wasn't that lucky, but they found it in a store and brought it to me. I still got it, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, because it's a spiritual reminder for me. The difference in religion, or being religious, and the pursuit of righteousness might need to include this idea for us as well, a behavioral modification versus a heart modification. A mere behavioral modification. I go here at certain times and I do this because by doing this, I and it, whatever comes next for the individual, I feel better about myself, I, I appease my mother, uh, I appease my wife, uh, I just think, I, I, I ease my conscience, I'll think I'll be right with God because I went here and did this. Behavioral modification versus what we might call a heart modification. And I want you to consider then for righteousness, a heart modification. This phrase. Righteousness bleeds from Christ. Righteousness bleeds from Christ. Back in 2010, we had the big flood in Nashville, Middle Tennessee. We had the big flood, uh, and the area in Nashville where I live was not immune from this at all. 30 days exactly after the big flood, 30 days. Of course, we had had so much rain. And I, where I live was the old Glendale Park Zoo, if any of you know about where that was. My dad went there as a boy. It was the last stop on the trolley going out of downtown Nashville, that direction, uh, and, and what was then 10th Avenue, and it kept going up. It's now called Leland Lane, and, and it, it ended right there at the corner at Glendale Park Zoo. 
and they wound up after World War II, it's through World War II, started having some problems, and eventually it just kind of went its way, and they just raised that, and they started building houses in there. And I'm one of the, and, and our home growing up, Pam and I, our home growing up, what did we have in our backyard, like the alligator pit or the bear, is the alligator pit? Um, back there, and you can see all, where all this stuff was and all the houses that are through that area. There's a lot of caves. There were a lot of caves. There's a bear cave, that sort of thing, and that's near where my house is. And a lot of caves, you can't see what's underground 30 days after the um, flood. Uh, I came home one night. Power was out. We are in a massive storm. And we had been over at some friend's house for a grill out or cook, uh, it <laughs> turned inside quickly. And I got home. I can't see anything. It's t- I get, you know, I'm with my phone flashlight. I get outside. I'm going to take the dog out. And I came about that close to who knows what because there was a giant hole in my backyard 30 feet in diameter. 28.7 if you want to just get technical. And anywhere from 9 feet to 14 feet deep. Just It's like a cookie cutter. You took a giant cookie cutter and just went, moved that earth I thought I should have been thinking swimming pool, right? Right there, ready-made. How'd that happen? Something underneath was flowing. Something underneath is, was causing that. Well before, well before the outcome that went and moved the earth. That was set up by the flood is what the engineers that came out and looked at it said. That was set up by the flood from earlier. I'm telling you, righteousness bleeds from Christ. It's an outcome. It's not its own thing. It's an outcome of something else. It bleeds from something and someone else. It's, a, it's bleeding from Christ. We make changes all the time to our life. We think about eating less. Uh, we think about eating smart. We think about working hard versus working smart. And we should think spiritually along these lines as well to become like Paul, not just religious, but righteous. I think in Scripture we need to understand that growth is really not an option. In the home our parents lived in for 52 years, there is a bathroom that uh, closet door that you open up and there are markings and everybody's name is on that. There's my name, my sister's name, my brother's name. Now here come the grandkids, all the six grandkids' names. And here's where Andy measured on June 6th of 1969 and where Pam measured in 72 and Phil measured in 78 and Andy again and look at the growth, you know, that sort of thing. And I want you to believe this for the rest of your life, that if you are where you are at 55, when you became a Christian at 25, folks, I wouldn't be comfortable with that because I don't think Scripture is comfortable. Growth should not be seen as something optional for the Christian. We should be in regular movement. And one of the movements we should be in is the movement from being a religious person to a righteous person. 
Paul was certainly a religious person. Paul had a resume. I don't know how many of you are keeping a resume. Some of you are way past needing to keep a resume on file. Some of you aren't even there yet. And some just don't keep one at all. But maybe some keep a resume and you're regularly looking at it. To What is a resume? It's here's what I've done which gives you an idea of what I might be able to do at your place in the future. Would you talk to me, please? Well, Paul had one of those. And Paul recounts his resume in more than one place in Scripture. He gives a great glowing uh, account, a recount of his conversion in Acts chapter 26. And as part of that recount of his conversion, there and other places in Scripture, Philippians 3, he starts talking about who he was back when he was religious. But apparently, Paul didn't think that that was okay. He believed in growth. He believed in being on a a track to better who he was for God. Paul's resume was exchanged then. And this is the track we get on. To use Paul as an example for the remainder of our time, this is the track we get on to go from religious to righteous as Paul went from religious to righteous or righteousness. Who was Paul? Well, I told you he had a resume. In Acts chapter 22, you can see, uh, especially in verse 5, you can look in Acts 22, as he begins discussing his resume early in that chapter. You can look in Acts 26. You can go to Philippians 3. There is a reason that Paul is where he is when we first meet him in Acts chapter 8. The reason Paul is where he is is because prior to that he had become somebody. And he was a known somebody. And he was known to be religious. Of the strictest sect, in his own words, of the Pharisees. A Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul knew religion, and Paul was religious. The reason he was, and they laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. What's about to happen? He's stoning, they're stoning Stephen. And what's Saul to become Paul? What's he doing there? Most translations will use something like this, this phrase. And Saul was there giving hearty approval. It's hard to misunderstand hearty approval. That's not Saul was there, period. That's not Saul was there and he didn't do anything to stop it. That's Saul's over there. Oh, good one, Jim, good one. You've got to get him right to here. Let me hold your coat so you can really get that arm back. That's what hearty approval of a stoning is. It's not a bystander. Why is he there? He's there because he's somebody. He's there of the order, of the folks that don't like what Stephen is saying. His resume is on file, we might say, by that time. There's a reason he is where he is when we first meet him. And that reason is because of who he is. Who he is on paper. He is religious. Well, eventually, Paul would move from religious only to righteousness. What would God need from Paul? Paul's strengths. You can say that about others. You can say that about Peter, for example. Oh, he's impetuous. He's the first to speak. 
uh, Lord, if everybody else deserts you, I won't. And then we turn to Luke 22, verses 54 through the end of the chapter, and we've got the denial of Christ. And it's not by anybody but Peter. But the Lord, well, why did He use Peter to preach the greatest sermon ever known to man? It's because, oh, if, if, if the Lord can just harness that that He's got, that boldness that He needs in His people to proclaim a message, if He can just tweak and harness that and channel it a little better. Paul's got the resume. Paul's got the resume to be heard. Paul's got the background. Paul's got the instruction. Paul's got the family name. Most scholars will say that Paul's family was at least moderately wealthy. And they'll give reasons why. Paul is somebody. It doesn't seem, it seems a little odd to us sometimes. Jesus called them one by one, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. You're going to start the greatest ever, uh, movement ever known to man. We've got to start the greatest movement, the most important work in the history of the world. Who are we going to get to lead it? Let's see, do we know any good fishermen? Now, when you're going to start a major, massive, most important work, and this one, the most important thing in the history of the world, how many of us are thinking, well, the first thing we need to do is figure out who can, who's really good at fishing. No offense to fishermen, but that's probably not where we're going. So throughout Scripture, it's clear that the Lord uses people that somebody else might not think of so that the glory goes there. But at the same time, this is too important not to be practical as well. And we see that from God. And we see it in his use of Paul, who's religious, but he's got to go further. And so what Paul had at his strength, God could use, we see it with Peter, we see it with Moses, we see it with others. We have this treasure in what? Earthen vessels, jars of clay. We're just jars of clay. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and especially verses 6 through 8. And so throughout Scripture, we see God's use of, quote, regular people for leadership, to, to, to rise to leadership so that glory goes to Him. Not always the person everybody would think of first. Oh, but Paul's background is going to be helpful in one particular way in showing how you go from religious to righteous. Remember, what he's doing, he's helping the stoning of Stephen and he's enabling that. Scripture says he's been a persecutor, he's running them down, he's putting them in jail. This is who Paul is. He's the hunter. This religious man is the hunter. Then, in Acts, you see the hunter, by his conversion, become the hunted. And has to be the protected by the very people he was hunting earlier. What's happening here? This religious sect, this religious group is saying, wait a minute, you can't do that to us. We know what's right. We know what... We're the representatives for these people from God on earth at this place at this time. What do you think you're doing? Listen, this still happens. This still happens, folks. Some of those that receive the most, we might say, vitriol, the, who are hated the most, who are turned on the most and the strongest, are people that come out and come away from something 
that they believed to be sinful that they used to practice. And now the people that are still practicing it who used to be their best friends can't stand them. Why? Because you're showing us something else and it shines a little bit of light on what I'm doing. This happens all over the place. The hunter became the hunted and had to become the protected by the very people he was hunting. Something's changing. Well, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 and Philippians chapter 1 verse 11, you're going to see a little bit of this. I'm going to flip over to you for the sake of for you to, for the sake of time. I'm going to flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read to you from verse 21 right there. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become righteousness. Not that we will continue to be religious, but we will become. Become is a word which says there's change, there's movement. You can't become something if you're already there. Become by its very nature. The word, by definition, means something has shifted. Something has changed. Something has grown. He has become something. Automatically means He didn't used to be. That we become, what? Religious? Instead, those that have been religious become more. They become His righteousness. How does Paul move from religiousness to righteousness? Well, I mentioned in Acts 26, he recounts his conversion. He reminds them who he was. He gives his resume. And in chapter 26, verse 8, it, makes, it begins to make sense. It's made sense to Paul, and he wants it to make sense to his audience. Acts chapter 26, verse 8 goes like this. Why should it be thought incredible that God should raise the dead? Folks, listen, if the church doesn't lead the way in this, the world has a problem on its hands. We have a purpose. Ephesians 2 verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Those works are many, and we don't have time to go through them all. What's one of them? To be... 1 Peter 2.9, out there proclaiming the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. If we're not doing that, heaven help the world. We ought to lead the way in being logical in our faith. We ought to lead the way in logical faith. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe in the God that created the heavens and the earth? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can I get some head nods or something to, yeah, you believe that, right? I would expect you to, or, or there's no reason for you to be here, right? Okay, me too. Let me ask you a question. Would it make sense, logical sense? Be sensible in your faith. Does it make sense to believe in a God who can create it all and sustain it all? So much so that if the sun were that much further away from the earth, it would freeze. And if it were that much closer on the scale of things to the earth, it would incinerate. And somehow it just stays there. 
I believe in that God who creates it and sustains it. Oh, but He can't raise the dead. Learn to reason from the greater to the lesser. It makes no sense to believe in a God who can do all that. Oh, but He can't handle my problem. We ought to lead the way in logical faith. We ought to be sensible in our faith. Reason from the greater to the lesser. And in Acts chapter 26, verse 8, this religious man, who earlier would not have been one ever to get past this idea that he sent his son and raised him from the dead. No, somebody stole the body. No, he was never really dead. No, he whatever all those arguments are now that were then. The religious Pharisee of Pharisees ask a question. It says, he's moved. He has become His righteousness. Why should it be thought incredible that God could raise the dead? Later, he recounts himself as a prisoner of and for Christ. So how do I move from just religious to righteousness? We need to close with this pretty quickly. I'll take you back to Matthew 5 and verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We first recognize that by our own goodness we're spiritually impoverished people. That we bring nothing to the table. We trust. And what that might mean is some difficult times where you can't see the end. And Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. We think about phrases like that. We look at the great Hebrews chapter 11 Hall of Fame of Faith and we look at what those people did. We're in pursuit of of righteousness and pursuit demands trust. Righteousness will ask better questions than religion will. Can I say that? Righteousness will ask better questions. Here's what I mean. Will God, contempt, will God condemn me to hell for? Fill in the blank. It's not the right question. That's a religious question. It's not necessarily a righteous question. A righteous question changes a little bit to maybe sound something like this. What does God desire? There's a difference in does this cross the line and I don't want to be anywhere near the line. There's a difference in those two ideas. There's a difference in those attitudes. There's a difference in that mind. There's a difference in that heart. And there's a difference in the question asked. Righteousness asks different questions than religion does. Righteousness will ask better questions. Righteousness will think what should happen next, not just what somebody could understand that I did because of something that happened to me. Righteousness will focus on what should happen next or what might happen next if I respond a certain way. Proverbs 14.34, righteousness exalts a nation. Why doesn't it say religion exalts a nation? It hasn't. We've got plenty of religion in the United States. We need more righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His, what? Righteousness. And then all these things 
will be added unto you. 